This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by 10,000, makers of high-quality, super-comfortable training shorts. 10,000 is offering NMA Radio listeners 15% off your first purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code NOMEAT to receive 15% off. That's T-E-N-thousand.cc and enter code NOMEAT. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Nomeat Athlete Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Nomad Athlete Radio. This is Doug with Matt Tolman. And Matt, I was thinking about you the other day because I've been I've been intermittent fasting. And uh, I've talked about this on a couple of intros now, so I'm not going to go into too many details. But it's been going really well. It's stuck with me for much longer than it ever has before. But you, you've done a lot of, like, 24-hour fasts, right? Or maybe even longer. I have not actually done too many of the longer ones. I'm a big fan of the 16 to 24 hours. Um, okay. Yeah, they they I find those really easy. You know, you have a an early dinner, which you know now with two toddlers, you know we we eat really early anyway, like five o'clock, and then uh-huh. you know pretty pretty much uh, you're you're sleeping through. Um, you know the the hunger pangs, if you will, and uh, and I don't like to eat in the morning anyway, and and so by like noon, you're hitting that sixteen hour mark, give or take, obviously, uh, and that's when things start to like kind of flow, and then by like eighteen hours, like I actually feel more energy. Um, so as I go through the afternoon, like I f- I'm just feeling good, and uh, and and then yeah, by five six o'clock, sometimes I'll skip dinner that night and write it out to like seven or eight and uh and just it works i do that pretty pretty frequently yeah so i you know i'm thinking about I'm, i've just i've decided that i'm going to do a 24-hour fast to see how that feels um which i've never done before so uh i'll let you know but that's that's a good tip start at the because we you know we have dinner at 5 30 as well so plan that I, then I, and then I, if you've never done it i actually encourage people to start it as early as possible on the first day because like i said the the hardest part in my experience and i've heard this from others is that period um you know kind of in the like the six to eight hour range maybe even less because like your your stomach is still expanded and you're still in that kind of fed state where you're used to being fed on Uh like every three to five hour kind of cadence and so right around that five hour mark you know, you'll, you'll probably get hungry. You'll probably think about food, you know, and that's the most difficult time. So that's why I always say like, you know, sleeping through that is the best idea. Mm. So if you can start at like 3 p.m., right? And then like, you know, you're in the evening, you got to stay away from the popcorn or the beer, or whatever it is that people snack on at night. Um, but that way, when you wake up the next day, whatever it is, six or seven in the morning, like, you're already in that that cruise control where you're 12 mm. plus hours into it, 14, 15. So like the morning, yeah, it might be difficult to break that habit of usually eating something. You know, make sure if you do drink coffee or tea, you don't add some milk. I've accidentally done that and really, you know, ruined my day because I was like, ah, I was fasting. I forgot. I you know <laughs> put some, I had a matcha latte on accident, right? Um, so, you know, there's there's some debate over whether or not caffeine being a xenobiotic actually, you know, moves you out of the fasted state and into the fed state. But I, I'm, I'm you know, I need the caffeine to, to you know, <laughs> get through the day in the way that I need to. So, uh, yeah, I, I make that exception. But, but like I say, for those attempting that 24-hour fast, start at like 3 o'clock. So that way, by like 10 in the morning you're feeling that energy boost that I think a lot of people fast for because like your, 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 your body is just like cleaned out, right? Your mind is really clear. You actually start to enjoy it. And then, you know, you get through that early afternoon and by 3 p.m. you've hit 24 hours. Every time I've done that, I, I've like, you know, it's kind of like that feeling, I don't, I'm sure you know it, at the end of a marathon where like, I could keep going, right? Like you're just, you're buzzed because yeah. like you did it, you accomplished your goal. And so by three, you're like, all right, I'm just, I'm not going to eat. I'm going to keep going, right? I'm going to ride this thing out as long as possible. And then I'll eat, you know, usually about five and you get just like an incredible fast that way. So 
Anyway, try it out. See what works for you. I am excited to hear uh, what you think about it. Okay. All right. I'll, <laughs> I'll have to update you. That's a, a good advice. Great advice. All right. So you have another interview for us today. Why don't you go ahead and set that up? I'm really excited about this one. It's with Dean Scherzai, who is a MD, PhD, MPH, which is a master's in public health, and also an MAS, which I have never seen before. And I have to call out. Yeah, I don't have any idea what the MAS, a master's in something. Um, But he is a behavioral neurologist and a, a neuroscientist. He has done incredible things in terms of population-wide, I mean, public health. Um, He actually set up uh, Afghanistan's uh, public health system. And so we spoke to them, uh, him, just after um, uh, the U.S. exited Afghanistan. And we steered away from the the big moral topics, uh, although I really want to have him back to dig into that uh, because obviously he has a lot to say. He was on the ground there, um, helping to, to, you know, put together the uh, Afghan government um, after, you know, the first time the Taliban fell. Um, But we really focused this conversation on the neurology and the neuroscience of Alzheimer's and dementia and kind of tease out the differences in the two and just a a little bit of of the, the basics, right? Because all of us Fear, I, I think, without uh, it would uh, goes without saying that we all fear uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm-hmm. But I, I, unlike heart disease, um, even unlike cancer, I think uh, the brain health has a certain, you know, kind of mysticism, some, some opaqueness. We don't really know what that's about, right? Obviously, plant based eaters all think you know, oh, well, cerebrovascular diseases, like, I'll just keep my vascular system clean, I won't eat, you know, animal-based cholesterol, and, like, I'll be good to go, which I think is, you know, a, a great step in the right direction, but, like, we don't really think deeper than that or know that much more about it, and and so I'm really excited about this conversation because we start with the basics, we get a little deeper, I think everyone will learn something. Fascinating, yeah, we have a lot of uh, Alzheimer's in my family and and dementia in my family so I'm really excited for this one to learn a bit more and dive in awesome alright should we just do it let's do it let's do it Aisha and I met in Afghanistan when I went back from NIH in 2002 I was at NIH building 10 which is the wonkiest most unusual place in the planet uh, we did brain stem uh you know research we did uh, you know stem cell research we did uh, you know i did um, where you put actually uh, probes into the brain into the basal ganglia to regrow run, uh, neuronal cells um for parkinson's patients and and uh, multi-system atrophy patients these people that are rapidly deteriorate and at that point i was asked by Tommy Thompson and World Bank to, because I had some public health background to go back to Afghanistan and see if you, I can help for three months. Um, I lived in a beautiful house on a lake in Reston, Virginia, and went to Bethesda every day, uh, that, that long drive, 45 minutes, but it's beautiful, it's green, it's, you know, put some music on and you're listening to Pink Floyd or, you know, something else. And, and then I end up in Afghanistan. I land in an airport that has no electricity, I drive on a road, the main road with buildings on two sides where nothing is standing, nothing. And these little babies pull their heads up and you say, wait, why are they there? They should be leaving. Oh no, but that's their home. Uh, oh, okay. So um, three months turned into three years when I was asked by the president uh, Karzai to become the deputy minister of health. I was the youngest person in Asia's deputy minister creating the healthcare system uh, around women's empowerment and and what I saw over the next three years and actually over the next 10 years was the most successful program in the world. And what I br- what I brought back after three years to America, back uh, to United States when I came back, we decided to come back and because we loved neuro so much, both my wife and I, um, both of our grandparents had Alzheimer's. They were brilliant, brilliant men. 
our first conversation, our first date was around that concept. So we came back to restart, but we didn't want to just go the path that was traveled. We wanted to do something unique as far as prevention, which was non-existent. I had done NIH, which was top place in research. And I had then I just joined UCSD, which was the number one neuroscience program in the country with seven Tesla MRIs and FMRIs and uh, 11 Tesla where you can actually see at the molecular level MRIs and like amazing stuff. I just came from a country where, uh, you know, not even an X-ray was present. I had to bring X-rays. And the main thing was that even in both places, it's human capital. It's about humanity. It's not technology. And what we've learned over the last 10 years and what we're doing now, which is very, very unique from everybody else, I think, and it's not a pejorative or it's not a put down of others. Yeah, we do the science as far as what vegetables work, you know, um, cucumbers and cruciferous vegetables and all those are great. But if you're not able to translate it to humanity, if you're not able to apply it to people and where they actually own it, it's just talking heads from podcast to podcast, from show to show, million person followers, uh, you know, by the dozens, but we're not connecting to human beings. So our vision, our purpose has been, and it is to take it to the next level. <clears throat> There's no controversy. We know plants work. We know exercise works. We know stress management works. We know sleep hygiene works. We know keeping your brain uh, and that there's some nuance in all this and we'll talk about this is amazing but how do you translate it to human beings where they own it you know um and that's what we've been doing we're i think we're the only neurologists or doctors that work in the communities across the country and trying to translate it and model it and learn from it and listen to it and 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 uh, that's what we're doing well um I clicked record because we started going into your background and for our podcast audience, it might be a little bit uh, uh, disjointed. Maybe we'll edit it back so that it's in chronological order, but let me first uh, introduce you, uh, Dr. Dean Shirzai, um, who I, I want to say you're a neurologist, a neuroscientist, a doctor, a researcher, but, but um from the way you uh, started introducing yourself, you're you're also a humanitarian and the the former uh, minister of health for Afghanistan. I did not I did not know that. That is not something in your very very long bio, you know, about your degrees and your fellowships and working for the NIH. You have a incredible um, uh, background and, and expertise in in particularly neurodegenerative disorders, but clearly in brain health. But you totally forgot the part where you know you had to build a a a nation's health system uh, uh, probably from scratch. So I think we could go down that um, rabbit hole, and and I'll leave it to you because I think we're gonna have to invite you back to have a second conversation. Um, so I'll let you decide. Do we want to talk about healthcare systems and nation building and Afghanistan, if if that's the mood you're in? Or we can, you know, make this uh, a little bit more practical and get into brain health and nutrition and tips and tri tricks. Uh, we can we can stay on around nutrition and lifestyle and, okay. and brain health at this point. And there are some commonalities in all of those, uh, um, but we will definitely um, touch on those a little bit. But at this point, I think let's let's stick to brain health. With, uh, Let Let's start off probably where where you just uh, left off. Um, it sounds like your love or your passion maybe it's not a love maybe it's a love-hate relationship with brain health comes from seeing a uh, a grandfather did you say suffer from from was it dementia or alzheimer's um dementia is the big category it's an umbrella category alzheimer's is the main type of dementia 60 70 percent of all dementias is alzheimer's he suffered from actually a combination of alzheimer's and vasculars which is called mixed dementia um, and that's actually more common than people think. Um, um, uh, yeah, so that was uh, my experience. He, um, we, we have a family in the East Coast and my uncles are surgeons um, and, and uh, you know, doctors in the East Coast. And we had a farm in, in, in Virginia um, uh, for hunting. Um, uh, this is 
20 years or so ago. So we would gather and thank, as I've said this before, thank goodness um, uh, for the animal's sake, uh, surgeons make terrible hunters. So we never, I don't remember ever shooting anything, to be honest. Uh, so, so that's, and then we would, at the end of the day, we would end up going to Giant Eagle or somewhere else or, you know, to buy, buy some food and, but my grandfather, who was the patriarch and brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, would be sitting around um, and then all the grandchildren and children around the table where he played chess with everybody. And, and the, the iconic, the, the cataclysmic moment in my life was when I remember one time playing chess and he forgot how to move the knight. Um, and everybody knew something was, was wrong. Um, and that was the beginning of, of the, the fall and the, the decline. And, and anxieties and the fears. Um, and I didn't know, but in a way, actually, that was what prompted me um, to go into neuro and, and to um, Alzheimer's in particular. Same, same story with my wife, Aisha, whose grandfather was a brilliant, brilliant man who um, um, same uh, had uh, Parkinson's dementia, and, but Alzheimer's as well. And that's, uh, that was devastating to watch um, those, those, those men. Our first conversation was around that. Uh, and I think most people in the West now have somebody, if not their grandparents or parents, uncle, aunt, that, that, that have this disease. We have 6 million people in U.S. alone who have dementia, Alzheimer's in particular. I mean, bigger, it's a larger number for dementia. And that's not even including a term that's not used often, which is cognitive decline. Oh, it's part of normal aging. Well, no, it shouldn't be because we know that that, that can be affected. Um, and the cognitive decline starts much earlier than people think it does. Um, uh, so um, it's, a, it's a terrible disease that we need to address as soon as possible as a society, uh, or it's going to overtake our, our entire system. So I think the, we need to start with the basics for yeah. me and for all of our audience, because we hear these terms, like you say, so many of us are affected by it. My, my grandmother, uh, I think um, she's 94 years old. So I don't think this would be early onset. I, I think this is just, uh, you know, uh, full-blown dementia. Um, yeah. I don't believe anyone's ever used the word Alzheimer's, but maybe you can just help us understand what, what is dementia? Uh, where, where does that, come from i mean i think we all kind of know maybe it's related to the vascular system i mean certainly if you had a plant-based diet you've probably read something about how if you clog up all your veins like bad things happen and cerebrovascular diseases come from that but maybe you can just pick apart and give us just the the uh you know three minute 101 we know nothing about brain health what are we talking about today yeah so dementia is an umbrella category that basically means when you have cognitive decline something wrong with your thinking to the extent where you can't do the things you could do before. If you can't drive now or having significant difficulty driving, if you have difficulty doing your finances, if you have difficulty cooking, not a physical limitation, but a thinking limitation, cognitive limitation. If you have difficulty uh, taking care of your medications, if you have difficulty making phone calls, if you have difficulty shopping because you just can't organize that in your head. And it's a chronic state, not a one-off state. If it's if it's a if you wake up one day and because you have a urinary tract infection or something you're disoriented, that's delirium. It might come and go, but if it persists, that's dementia. And there are many many causes. Simple causes like car accidents and traumatic brain injury, where the brain is damaged so much that that leaves you at a lower state. There, or you've had a stroke and that has left you in a lower state where you can't think or speak or or process the same way. But there are many categories. Like we said, Parkinson's often goes on to become dementia as well. Lewy body dementia, where there's a hallucinations and, and Parkinsonian symptoms. Multi-system atrophy, which is more rapid, where a lot of the systems are affected together. Uh, PSP, uh, Huntington's disease, where there are these abnormal movements and behavioral issues early on, and it's very, very genetically driven, 100% genetically driven. And if you have those genes, you can't stop it. That's it. And, and, and then metabolic dementias, uh, B12 deficiency uh, for a long time can go on to become dementia. Thyroid disease that's untreated for a long time can become the dementia. And a lot of metabolic disorders that, that, that are not treated well can become dementia. And, and then Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's for a long time was thought to be just a genetic disease. We had no relationship between Alzheimer's and, and whatever we could have done. 
And we kind of challenged that about 10 years ago or so saying, no, there's evidence that there's more to it than just uh, genetics. In fact, the genetics don't fit. And initially it was quite controversial, but now everybody accepts it. Um, different degrees. Some people say 30% of Alzheimer's can be prevented through lifestyle intervention. I'll just say 60%. We say as much as 90% under optimal lifestyle intervention. Some people have gone overboard and say they can reverse Alzheimer's. And if you take these vitamins and on, you, you see this all, all the time on TV, these, these charlatans that are selling their vitamins and pills and protocols and all that, these are, these are charlatans. And I say that aggressively because I love my patients. I love my families that come to me. And for me to be soft about that is, is criminal. And for these people to pick on people's hopes and fears to make a few bucks, they're criminals. It doesn't matter if they've done good science in the past, now they're criminals. Um, and, and that's not overly aggressive because I know what happens to these families, 30,000, $40,000 later, and they're same place and they're broke. Um, and uh, that's, that's why it's critical that we appropriately say what can be done and what can't be done. Um, when we wrote our book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, we were so reluctant to even, maybe indirectly somebody's going to think that we're saying that we have a solution for somebody who already has, has Alzheimer's. And we were convinced, although in retrospect, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure, but we were convinced that, oh, no, you can do the explaining after the fact. I said, no, that's a little too late. But, but, uh, but the point we're making is like, once you have Alzheimer's, you can't reverse it. Not at this point. There's nobody. In, and if people are making claims like uh, the last Alzheimer's patient and this and that, they're, they're charlatans. But here's the incredible positive news. For those that are at the earliest stages, pre-Alzheimer's or are having cognitive decline, or they're not even having cognitive decline, but they want to make the lifestyle changes, for 90% of them, it's preventable, more than 90% of them. And, and it's preventable without ever having to pay somebody like me or others on TV. It's comprehensive, but it's lifestyle that you implement in your life. It's not going to be one-off blueberries. Oh, blueberries are great, 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 great. Yeah, you eat blueberries <laughs> and then burgers and fries on the side. That's not going to work. But it has to be comprehensive. And if you do the comprehensive thing, it's free and it's powerful. Not only do you avoid Alzheimer's, but you maintain your cognitive prowess and actually grow it. Yes, you grow it without ever needing me or anybody else. Well, I, uh, I think the only natural next question is, well, what is the lifestyle? I mean, tell us more. <laughs> yeah, so, so we, we talk about neuro. Um, we, we, we wanted to make it easy for, for people. We're, we're not about little catchy things. So, but at the same time, you want to make it easy. So neuro is a little self-serving. It's nutrition, exercise, um, uh, unwind, um, restorative sleep, and optimizing mental activity and social activity. Under nutrition, we've included alcohol and cigarette smoking under that as well. Um, and the nutrition component is huge. I mean, even uh, the MIND study, which was done uh, uh, by Martha Morris, uh, showed that a marginal plant-centered diet, reduce your chance of Alzheimer's at a time where they've at the, at the pre-Alzheimer's stage, what's called mild cognitive impairment, MCI stage. Even a marginal diet reduced your chance of Alzheimer's by 53%. And that's not even an optimal diet, which is a whole food plant-based diet. The data on whole food plant-based is massive for those guys on TV uh, who are trying to say, oh, but what about this deficiency? And what about this deficiency? Well, well, you don't have to worry about those deficiencies. Just be aware of B12, be aware of omega-3, be aware of being, um, you know, uh, having a planned diet. You should have a planned diet anyway, no matter what your diet is. And if you're aware of those things, you're checking yourself, then what you're, you're not worried about deficiency. You're actually eliminating massive poisons, processed foods, salt, sugar, saturated fat, all these chemicals. You're comparing the, the loss of those things, which are poisons to the brain, with possibility of a B12 deficiency, which is overcome easily if that's a problem. If you're, if you're consciously eating healthy, you're not, that's not going to be a problem. But let's say you are worried, take a B12. You know, there's all these wars even in the plant-based world, B12 and non-B12, and they tear each other up. Children, stand aside. Somebody needs B12, take the B12. 
and and B12 is water soluble, it's fine. Omega-3, we did the massive reviews papers, um, two papers, uh, comprehensive reviews, omega-3 in the developing brain and omega-3 in the aging brain. Initially, I was incredulous about taking supplements, but there's some evidence, at least on those two ends of the spectrum, it might help. Not strong data, trends. And in science, in general public, they think that people think that we need absolute perfect data. We've created airplanes with imperfect data. <laughs> when they say fly the plane while you're making it, that's literally what we've done throughout history. Science is not perfect. Science creates um, confidence intervals, directions, testable, repeatable, correctable, fixable, process improvement. And with trends looking a certain way, and, and if it comes out wrong later, that's fine. That's science. That, that's the best tool we have. It appears that for young people where the brain is developing the fastest you can imagine any time in your life are parts where it's doubling every month. And in the aging brain, you might need some supplement. And we say, um, we don't have a brand. We're not selling anything. So it's you and, and the world out there. Uh, we prefer you take algae-based because we don't check for mercury lead consistently in these things and, and fish fish based things have those. And, and, and we don't check for the 3000 other chemicals that are added into the ocean, which uh, concentrating organisms like fish actually concentrate. So just we, and that's soft data. So if you wanna get fish based, that's fine. If you wanna even eat fish, the data on fish is that it's okay. The data so far shows it's good. We don't eat for multiple reasons. One of them is the fact that we're worried that we don't check the chemicals in fish, which are concentrators. The other reasons are the oceans that we're dem demolishing another two years, 20 years of oceans and it's gone and, and everything else, animals as well. So, but you, if you have an algae-based one, just cleaner, uh, more concentrated, more, then, then take that. But outside of that, the, the deficiencies that people keep, what I, I, we, I named it uh, the deficiency, uh, a uh, false deficiency syndrome, um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, uh, FDS, um, where every day somebody comes up, oh, what about this deficiency? What are... All those deficiencies also exist in the omnivore diet, but with it comes all the poisons. The standard American diet is full of processed material that we can't even, uh, we, we don't even you know, know the effect long-term on, on the brain. So a whole food plant-based bio diet is the best. The second thing is exercise, and exercise is critical. And I'm sorry, whenever I bring that up, my patients say, Dr. Dean, we're fine. I walk the neighborhood, I take the dog out, I do the gardening. I said, those are fantastic, those, that's meditation. <laughs> exercise, yeah, exercise means you have to get tired. You have to get tired. And, and the effect of exercise is just profound. So we say nutrition, stress management and sleep create the environment for possibly healing the brain and building the brain but exercise and mental activity actually grow the brain study after study shows that when people at any age remember that after the age of 20 we start having shrinkage of the brain across the board the brain starts shrinking but people who started an exercise program a you know, uh, aerobic exercise program and anaerobic, and I'll talk about that in a second, but especially aerobic exercise where they got tired at least 25 minutes to 30 minutes a day. They actually grew parts of the brain, include, especially hippocampus, which is for memory, and the frontal lobe, which is for processing. They grew those areas. Why? More vas the most vascular organ in the body is the brain by far. Um, you, by exercising, you give it proper amount of oxygen, proper amount of nutrients, more blood supply, more, more what they call vasogenesis, uh, uh, which is growth of blood vessels. You increase your BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a growth factor of neuronal connections by a factor of 10 with, with each exercise. I mean, the benefits are just bewildering. By the way, the most effective antidepressant and anti-anxiety program by three times by a factor of three exercise hey it's matt and doug here we're going to interrupt the interview for just a few minutes to thank our sponsors this episode is brought to you by Ten Thousand, makers of high quality super comfortable training shorts and shirts at the core of Ten Thousand are three training shorts built for all the ways you train the interval short 
Versatile and great for hit, spinning, metcons, short runs, and anything else you can think of. The foundation short, built for durability for tough gym days and outdoor adventures. And the session short, super lightweight, perfect for running, yoga, and mobility. Matt, I think we both have the interval short and the session short. Which one's your favorite? Doug, you can see I'm wearing this shirt right now. Uh, I actually don't have any pants on, so I don't have any. Uh, <laughs> but you do you have a 10,000 short shirt on. <laughs> yes, I do. I love it. So it's super lightweight. So I'm going to have to say that's my favorite thing. It's like my favorite workout shirt ever. So that's I, my Well, I, I love that. Mine is, my favorite is the session short, which is uh, my go-to running short right now. It is just super lightweight and comfortable. I've been wearing it on my long runs. Haven't had any chafing issues that I traditionally have. It's a real winner. Mm-hmm. 10,000 is a direct-to-consumer company with no middleman, so you get premium fabrics, trims, and techniques that other brands simply cannot afford. Plus, they collaborate with a team of over 200 athletes who test their gear to ensure the perfect design, fabric, trim, and fit. Just pick the short that best supports your training and then personalize it with custom liner and inseam options, then get free shipping and returns and their special lifetime guarantee. 10,000 is offering NMA radio listeners 15% 15% off their first purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code NOMEAT to get your 15% off. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D.cc and enter promo code NOMEAT to get 15% off. All right. And with that, let's get back to our conversation. I'm, I'm trying to write down all the things that I want to ask, uh, but we all hear that exercise is just the most important thing. You have qualifiers, you've got to get tired. So there's yes. a couple of questions that I have. One, what is the difference as far as your exposure or the clinical science around types of exercise? So obviously, does it, does it matter if you're running or riding a bike, right? More what we would think of as cardiovascular exercises versus you know, a, a team-based sport versus uh, lifting weights, right? Um, and related to that, you know, you emphasize you have to get tired. Um, what if it's a, a 65 or 75 year old woman who gets tired because, you know, and, and so therefore her version, right? I mean, it, I, I assume your point is like, you, you got to break a sweat, you got to exert yourself, you got to make it count, right? Yes. I'm asking for my father's benefit. At 74, he says he is getting tired. And I'm like, all right, but yeah, you know, so, so tell us, you know, like I said, does the type of exercise matter? What, what, what does the science say there? And then what's your response from my dad, you know, who's going to the gym, you know, he's maybe lifting weights, he's maybe moving his legs on the bike, but he's not pumping his heart, you know? So um, I'll let you go from those. Yeah, no, no. Beautiful, beautiful question. Um, um, the level of personalization has not been determined yet. And what, what I mean by that is even with food there in the next 10, 15 years, especially with AI and all these tools we're going to have, we will get a significant amount of information as far as personalized, even lifestyle, right? Um, what you do might be a little different than what I do and so on and so forth. But in general, it appears at this point that aerobic exercise where you break a sweat and you you raise your heart rate, and I'm not going to do the, the math where people do where, you know, um, uh, um, uh, your age minus the, you know, the and then all of that stuff. No, if your heart rate is racing, um, a Harvard study showed that when people did 25 minutes of brisk walking for several years, they reduced their chance of the Alzheimer's by 45%. Now, why do I bring the Harvard part? Because you, you assume that they've done their due diligence as far as model. The model was done well, meaning that it was large enough where you could actually control for all the other variables that might be confounding or might be affecting the data. No, it was, it was exercise. It was the brisk walk. We know that. So, but the brisk walk in itself, I love brisk walking because much less trauma on the body, much less trauma on the brain, not, you know, jumping around. Um, my favorite would be, in fact, when people come to our programs in the Brain Health Revolution, we start them with a brisk walk in the morning as the first thing, even before food, because you, I'm a behavioral neurologist, so habit creation is central to me. That, that's what we have in my, my, our next book is going to be around that concept. It, you want a quick early success. Sleep hygiene is going to take several months. That's not going to give you the quick response, quick return. 
Food is going to take a few weeks. That's not going to give you the quick return. A brisk walk in the morning, it's going to affect your sleep because that light is going to get your melatonin down, cortisol up, reset your clock. So you're going to sleep better. It's going to reset your metabolism. It's going to reset your mood cycles. It's going to reset your um, uh, vascular responses. And, and, and when it comes to exercise itself, the brisk walk, that's, that's going to be phenomenal. So across the board, the first thing I say, if, you, if there is one thing to choose to start with, an early morning brisk walk to reset all of those things. And the, and the return is quicker and you get that dopamine surge quicker. And that sets you in the path of behavior change, right? I mean, that's, that's the, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so aerobic exercise and, and the type and the amount varies from person to person. So if I make anything, any more concrete statement that overgeneralizes, that's a fa fallacy. You have to start where you are, break your sweat. And now you can't stay at that level because you normalize that, right? So you have to keep pushing yourself. You have to keep pushing yourself a little more with your doctor as a supervising, make sure you don't have medical problems. You know, you don't, you don't injure yourself. You, you do stretching. I learned that the hard way. Um, at, at, uh, at 53, I, I started, um, when the book was being released, I tried to do, to break my, uh, the push-up record for my age. And I tore the, um, a supraspinatus muscle right off the bone, um, because never stretched. And, and also I, I developed certain muscles, but not other muscles. So I never did because of my lower back surgery. I never did, um, uh, anything that with the shoulders. So those muscles were weaker at tore. The general concept is know where you are as far as your health is concerned. Make sure that you go with the health in mind. Always stretch, something that I never did in high school with all the sports, but that's a critical thing. And if you do that and you keep pushing yourself, you'll see the benefit You'll more than anything else, especially with exercise, so aerobic. The second thing we found was leg, muscle building exercises are almost as effective, but especially leg exercises several studies and we were very incredulous about these studies because we said this is, this doesn't sound it doesn't fit my my um, research paradigm leg strength seemed to be correlated with brain health uh, so we said there must be some other confounding variable there that we're not seeing you know some some other factor that's being hidden and and what we're seeing is the leg thing no it was legs leg exercise so uh, I'm not saying do, you know, put squats with weight on your shoulder, but mini squats, lunges, um, uh, or, you know, exercises with biking and things like that really help the brain grow. In fact, several studies show that people, when they applied leg strengthening exercise, they actually grew their brain. So leg strength. And then the other benefit of leg strength, especially as we get older, is that the number one reason for uh, elderly who end up in the emergency room is fall risk. And the number one thing to avoid falls is to maintain your leg strength. So that's a critical thing. And the third thing really? is, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm, I'm, no, no. I'm continuing to write down my questions. Yeah, no, and I'll stop after this. And the third thing is move throughout the day. Move throughout the day. You can't just work out half an hour and then sit and be a couch potato. Your vasculature, your metabolism will adjust to the lower state where you're sitting six hours in a row. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's going to be a, uh, negate all the benefits. Um, so move throughout the day, make your living space, a standing, moving, walking, uh, skipping space. You know, uh, if, if, if you're watching TV, watch it standing or do, do little mini squats here and there. Um, uh, so be on the move as much as you can. That also increases your energy levels throughout the day. There appears that people who moved throughout the day, independent of all the other variables, were more alert and oriented than others. So those are the three aspects of, uh, of, of exercise. Um, just one quick follow-up. Uh, was there any, did you figure out any uh, rationale or, or uh, sort of causal connection between the leg and yeah. brain health? Um, we're positing some, and, and others have done as well. So the way the blood gets back to the heart and then to the brain so the blood goes through lower vena cava and then into the right side of the heart but the way it goes up is not because the uh, veins veins get blood back into the bright uh, into the heart and arteries are clean blood that comes out of the heart right so the way that blood goes into the heart is through veins and veins don't have a muscle they don't have muscle 
What pushes the veins up, because they have one-sided valves, is leg muscles. So the strongest pump in your body is not the heart, it's, it's the legs. That's one uh, mechanism. And if you move, you're pushing blood continuously in a proper way, in an appropriate, physiologically uh, appropriate way, back into the heart, back into the brain. So that's, that's the thing. The other thing that we found is that because legs are the biggest muscles, your metabolism, those are the centers of where your metabolism take place, don't they? Even glucose, everything. Mm -hmm. Your metabolism is normalized much better. And the third thing is, because they're the biggest muscles and because of uh, exercise with legs, you create more BDNF in the brain long-term, which is the growth factors. So those are some um, uh, uh, theories that are positive and they're, they're, they're tenable, they're meaningful. And I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we could go on and on about exercise because of how important it is. Um, uh, I want to make sure to touch on sleep um, as I think that's an, an uh, um, more recently appreciated and continuously, you know, uh, or I should say increasingly researched area. Um, certainly I'm, I am the, uh, uh, yeah, poster child of, of, uh, the, the cognitive dissonance where it's like, I know I should be sleeping, you know, 10 hours, like let myself wake up naturally. And yet like, you know, I have kids and there's never enough hours in the day. And I think better before the sun rises. So like my alarm goes off somewhere between four 30 and five 30 every day. And I'm probably getting, you know, at that, uh, you know, six, seven hours of sleep. Um, how much damage am I doing? <laughs> and tell me why, why should I sleep more? Yeah. So the, how much depends on multiple variables. If you're eating poorly and not sleeping, that's exponential. It's not one and one equals two. It's one and one equals six. If you're not sleeping well and not exercising and not eating well, that's beyond, you know, so, so, and by the way, you remember that majority of Americans uh, by by Amer by American Heart Association standards, which is very low standards of nutrition, I'm not going to say why, but you know funding and all of that. By their <laughs> standard, only 0.4 percent of Americans eat healthy. So sleep is even worse. 40 percent. Sorry, I have to just clarify that. So the standards that we all agree are, you know, just uh, not based in science. Let's say that to be political. Yeah. That it's 0.4 percent, correct? So 0.004, I yes, mean, yeah, on their standards, yes. So essentially, no one, no one, essentially, <laughs> you, you, you me, and the, and the people listening to this, yes. Okay, so and 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 people come to me and say, Dr. Scherzer, I'm fine, I'm, I'm I'm eating well, and what they mean by that a lot of times is that they've taken gluten out, which is a my god, I mean, that in itself <laughs> is a whole, I don't, I don't want to get into that. or. I'm, I'm, I'm eating organic, like all of a sudden organic became a thing. No, eat non-organic plants. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know? Yeah. If it's organic, that's great. But if it's the difference between non-organic and, and chips, <laughs> eat the non-organic plants, right, you know, right. yeah, and, and we've gotten these words and we're stuck to those words or the superfoods, you know, um, I'm, uh, what can I eat to feel better? I mean, not just mushrooms alone, not just blueberries alone, you have to change your diet. I mean, that's a thing. And, and, but the, but, but the good news is you can have healthy food that's tasty, easy, and healthy. And that's why my wife, Aisha is both a neurologist and a cook, because we really think that it's that important to kind of teach people that you can eat healthy food. That's not the, it doesn't feel like deprivation. There's no way you can change public health. A lot of people are interested in how many people can I get into my program or I'm into my product or into my selling it? I'm, we're not. How can we get to most people without preaching and by meeting them where they are and giving them health? That's it. How do we do that? And then the subject of my PhD was CBPR, community-based participatory research. Even in research, you must include the community. Otherwise, it's like what has happened for 100 years where a survey was created in Boston, Massachusetts on 50 year old white men, and then was applied to 70 year old Hispanic women in San Bernardino. And then when it didn't connect, they said, oh, they failed. They didn't fail, you failed. Hmm. And everybody is the 70 year old Hispanic woman, meaning all of us are unique. 
if you're going to a community or you're talking to a group, you must, you know, my, my idea of leadership is listening well. Not just listening, listening well and understanding the opportunities, understanding the resources, understanding the threats, understanding the avenues and the first steps. You could understand the opportunities, threats and everything, but then you jump to fifth step and then they fail. It's like, oh, they failed. No, understanding where the first step is and then applying things like that. So <clears throat> sleep, we sleep is critically important. Otherwise, why would evolution have created something where eight hours you're paralyzed, seven to eight hours, literally paralyzed. In fact, there's a condition where the you wake up and you're still paralyzed. So it's one of the scariest things. Um, and so <clears throat> why would sleep be that important? Because the brain is the most active organ in the known universe. The operative term here is known. So I know that that's a hyperbole, but um, uh, so, uh, so this brain, 87 billion neurons, one quadrillion connections, 25% of the body's energy is used by this three pound organ continuously, even during sleep. So it needs rest. It needs restoration. And by the way, it's also enclosed in a hermetically sealed environment, the blood brain barrier. So getting rid of waste is a challenge. And all of that happens during sleep or majority of it happens during sleep. Sleep has two main functions, many, but two main cleansing and reorganizing. And when you don't sleep well, and I mean sleep well, there are people that sleep eight hours, they're knocked out. But if they have sleep apnea, they're not getting good sleep or they have these other disorders, sleep disorders where they're not allowed to go through, you know, the four phases, phase one, phase two, phase three and REM then they're not going through the cleansing, the reorganizing. Sleep is profoundly important. And although we're not against sleep meds, it can be used short term, but long term, there should be a sleep hygiene and cognitive behavioral therapy program that's instituted. And that takes longer, but the, but the, but the reward is amazing. You know, after six, seven months, after having instituted the sleep hygiene techniques, going to bed the same time. So you kind of condition the brain that knows, oh, it's 10 o'clock. Uh, the yawning starts the sleep. There's a reason for all that where because it knows 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock. I'm not saying 10 o'clock is a magic number. Pick the time you're going to go, go to sleep. Wake up eight hours later the next day. You'll, you'll do poorly at the beginning, but people fall into the cycle. Um, making sure you don't eat too close to bedtime making sure the temperature of the room is a little bit on the cooler side and making sure that the room is completely dark. And even when you wake up, you don't have bright lights, but you have red light or something like that, not blue light that wakes, wakes the uh, circadian clock um, behind the eyes, uh, making sure that there's no sound or if there is sound, it's a white noise, you know, having ACDC in the background, you, it's not going to wake you up, keep you, make you go to sleep. Um, I'm, I'm aging myself with ACDs, but um, so uh, all uh, and 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 oh, the eating. There's no forget about what foods to eat to sleep better. Oh, that's so sexy. Yeah, it's a yeah, go, but it's about what foods not to eat. So the energy level is lower down as you go to sleep. No, no, not high fat foods, not high sugar foods. A complex carb is good because it slowly releases and not even even there. You don't eat it 10 minutes before sleep. If you have to at the beginning, yes, that's fine. But over time, you push it back. Um, there's a lot of things you can do with running thoughts. There's the cognitive behavioral therapy, because all of us have been conditioned to associate bedtime with thinking. Now it's actually to the point where bed actually triggers thinking and worrying. And when you worry and think in bed, it's exaggerated. So you have to dissociate and disempower those thoughts. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a lot of things that we talk about with our, with our groups and families and, and patients. But sleep is critical. It's critical. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll maybe do a lightning round. I know there's so much more we could talk about uh, with, with the other uh, pillars of good brain lifestyle, if we call it that. Uh, but just one one follow up on that. Uh, I think I heard you say eight hours. 
Yes. You know, is that kind of the good target for, for us? To the best of our knowledge today, and I, and I mean that in the most, I think the only humble word in, in languages to the best of our knowledge today, which means I'm okay with that. I don't need perfect information to, to, to I mean, and we, we see the wars out there with vaccines and everything else. To the best of our knowledge today, which will change over time, but, but that's, that's the way that we've built planes. That's the way we've built supercomputers. Best of knowledge today. It appears that seven to eight hours of deep restorative sleep where you go through four to five cycles throughout the night is optimal. Now, if you wake up a couple of times a night, but you go right back to sleep, it's okay. Um, uh, so seven to eight hours is optimal. Now for kids, that's not the case. For kids, it's longer. Yeah. 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 Uh, I've, I've, I've got a kid who's you know, clocking in like 15, you know, between naps and, and nighttime. I envy so. your kid. I envy your kid. No, it's to your, to your I mean, it, it takes a lot to, to grow. Uh, so anyway, um, and uh so, so I think one of two, two quick questions and you can take them in either order, um, uh, sugar and alcohol. I think we all recognize that those are not positive things. Um, I've certainly heard more than one doctor say, Hey, a little glass of red wine, you know, maybe it's even positive, you know, it's like, um, maybe it helps with stress reduction. I don't know about that either. Um, but I've also heard sugar. Uh, you know, it's like the worst thing for the brain, even though, you know, the brain, like you say, is gobbling up energy in, a, in an amazing way. And, and probably why we all crave this energy dense substance like sugar, because it's, you know, it's what our bodies evolved to, to desire to run our, our energy intensive brains. Um, so, of course, I'm referring to, to refined sugar, as I, as yeah. I say, it's a, it's a bad thing. Um, but, but yeah, just lay out the, the research for us. What does alcohol and sugar do to our brains? Well, let's take those separately. So there, the amount of, at this point, again, to the best of our knowledge today, the amount of alcohol that's beneficial for your brain is zero. <laughs> Are there studies that have correlation of a glass of wine or two a day that showed positive outcomes in populations? Probably. Um, those are not clean studies. They were not able to take out all the other confounds, such as the fact that maybe it lowered anxiety in those populations. Maybe it's a it's the convivial nature of it, or maybe the fact that those populations, like the Mediterranean, and by the way, where is Mediterranean? I mean, I, we did the largest study on Mediterranean diet, one hundred thirty-three thousand people. We did it in California. So Mediterranean, how do you define it? Maybe it was other factors: the fact that they walked a lot more, the fact that they ate more plants, the fact that they had olives, and this, you know all of those factors. It's definitely not the resveratrol. In order for you to get enough resveratrol to affect your uh, chromatin and your um, you know, genes, you have to take drink a crate of alcohol and by then you're dead. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, but at the same time we tell people, and by the way, this is the most controversial topic. It appears that when we tell, take something away from people like this, <laughs> we're not very popular but we say if you're drinking a glass of wine here and there or even one a day probably the damage is not going to be that much but don't take don't say that that's a health food yeah and if you're not drinking don't start drinking and if you're drinking because it affects your anxiety i think the anxiety must be addressed because if alcohol is mitigating your anxiety it's got a deeper core a deeper core that's probably affecting many other things outside of the context of alcohol. That was a little complex, but just yeah. worry about the anxiety, not just hiding it with alcohol. Right. With sleep, does it put you to sleep? Yes, alcohol can knock you out, but it affects the depth of sleep. That's not a question. That's, that's been shown repeatedly that it affects how deep of a sleep you get. Yeah, you can, you know, yeah. so that's, that's the reality of alcohol. I'm not, I'm okay with people drinking a glass here and there or a glass even a day, but don't say that it's helpful. And, uh, but I have to imagine to the extent that you're drinking more than a glass a day, oh. then, then you're getting into the area where uh, it's certainly impacting your sleep. Um, assuming that most people drink in the evenings, right? Yes. Uh, and therefore it is actually probably having a, a very negative effect on uh, you know, your, your brain health over time. It does. 
There's no question. In fact, we know the problem of alcohol in our communities. We're working, we're doing research. Then a major problem is alcohol. And, and to, to you know, whitewash it and pass it off as, oh, this, it's okay, it's good for your health, that's small amounts. You're opening the door. I'm, I'm not one of those people who say, take everything out because a small amount is bad. No, it's, it's, you know, a glass here and there is fine, but it is not helpful. So I just, and, and more than that is definitely harmful. And if you're not drinking, do not start drinking. That's, that's the reality. There's no need for you to start drinking because you want to benefit yourself. There, there's no evidence. Yeah. Um, and, and last one, sugar. Yes. Um, so <clears throat> they, they talk about sugar as if it's natural. And if people who've traveled to third world countries and other countries, and as I have in many, many countries, sugar is a processed food. Sugar is a rare food. Sugar was not available throughout our life. When they bring paleo and this stuff, uh, first of all, I do not want to live like a paleo man because he lived at 30 years of age. Um, he lived at the sympathetic survival stage, not at the thriving stage. So everything that you are seeing around you that people are making argument for as, is a survival state argument, not a thriving state argument. Yes, your body is addicted to sugar and fat. So, so in one kind of argument in certain circles, it says, well, look, there's evidence. Your body is craving it, then it's good. Well, your body craves it because it just cared about you surviving the, the, the attack from the saber-toothed tiger. It didn't care about you living and playing music in your 60s, in your 50s, or having better focus by 10 to 20% in your 30s. Because that 20%, 30% focus improvement did not increase your survival any. But in today's world, it does. In today's world, it affects even your risk of disease. So sugar, I'd highlight sugar, especially so refined sugar. What it does is make glucose available to cells at high amounts, and the cell is not used to that, doesn't know what to do with it. So it actually feels like it's overwhelmed by sugar. It internalizes the receptors, and you actually are drowning in sugar, yet you're insulin sensitive, insulin resistant. So we did a study in, in Haynes, which is one of the largest databases. And this is not a speak, this doesn't speak to sugar, but it speaks to even pre-diabetic stage, which is, by, by the way, diabetes and pre-diabetes is caused by fat and sugar. So all the people fighting on one side or the other, both of those should be understood. And, and people even in pre-diabetes state, <clears throat> which usually people don't treat or don't put them in lifestyle programs, they had lower cognitive state. And this is in the NHANES study, which is very valid, large population-based study. So know your sugar levels. Those spikes that happen, they're not incidental. They're, not go they're gonna affect your mitochondria. They're gonna affect your cells. They're gonna damage your cells because the receptors get in internalized. It creates oxidation and inflammation because the body doesn't know what to do with this much sugar all at once. And it's damaged. Carbs are not bad. Carbs are great because they release glucose, especially complex carbs, slowly, which is the preferred source, type, and method of energy delivery to the cells, especially the hungriest cells in your body, the neurons. Um, there are so many directions. We didn't even get into omega-3s, uh, which is a topic near and dear to my heart with so many toddlers and, yeah. and uh, a pregnant woman in my house. Uh, um, but we're going to have to have you back on to, to talk more about uh, your, your time at NA, NIH and, uh, and in Afghanistan um, and also dig into so many of these topics. Uh, for now, just to wrap up, um, what, what is one message if, if, if people walk away from this and they say, you know, okay, I got the neuro thing. I, I need more sleep. I should cut back on alcohol. I should eat a whole food plant-based diet. But, but if they only remember one thing, um, what would that thing be? It's going to surprise you. It's not, not to, nothing to do with nutrition, exercise, any of those things. It's about how we approach health, how we approach behavior, how we approach the world. Throw away two words. One word, which is my least favorite word, is motivation. Motivation is the most demotivating word in language. 
yes, I'm a very motivated person and I had nothing to do with it. It was my environment, my mother, all of that stuff. But some mornings I wake up and I have no motivation. Now, since it's a soft word, I don't know what to do with that. If you, if your tool is not, it's not a tool that you can hold in your hand. It's not a tool that gives you proper torque that you can actually measure that torque. It's not a tool. What do I do with being not motivated in the morning? Oh, just pick yourself up by the bootstrap or these videos of these people saying, just, you know, I'm not going to name names, but just get up and run 50 miles. I mean, that's ridiculous to say that to public health at the, the national. Yeah. So get rid of that word and get rid of the word moderation. Moderation is a word people use to get out of doing things. Instead of that, clear direction, smart goals are critical. So if it's nutrition, don't just start all of nutrition. I'm eating this much sugar. And I'm going to reduce that, this sugar by 50% in the next month. That's specific. It's sugar. First, you have to know where you're getting your source of sugar or fat. But take one thing at a time because you want to be successful. Um, and you want to check that box. That checking that box actually turns on the dopamine addiction for positive behavior, which is the true mechanism of motivation. So sugar by 50% in the next month. So you have to know how much you're getting. How are you going to reduce it? Where are the impediments? Where are the things that might trigger you so you stay away from that? And after a month or two, once that taste changes, taste changes, and once you're past that addiction, then you go to the second habit. And at the end of that month, you say, oh, now I'm going to get rid of sugar altogether. That's a specific, measurable, attainable, relevant to your higher goal, and time-bound activity. That's a smart goal. That should be your life exercise i'm not going to run the marathon tomorrow but i can if i haven't been exercising i can do 10 minutes of brisk walk today and if you can do even more don't your goal is habit creation 10 minutes and on the fridge check that check gets you addicted to the behavior that's the way that this the behavior should be changed through measurable achievable attainable relevant and time-bound ways that you can check off and then you've changed personality You've changed character, you've changed self. Instead of the next diet plan of the week, the next you know uh, superfood of the week, the next pill of the week, this is how behaviors changed. Um, I have to give you the last word, but there's so much I want to say about that, uh, particularly because I'm a huge fan of of checking a, a paper calendar. Yes. Uh, I picked that up from Jerry Seinfeld, who uh, says he, he, if you want to get good at telling jokes, tell jokes every day. And yeah. he would, you know, mark a, a paper calendar. And I do that for literally every habit I'm trying to build or break. And uh, once you get that chain going, you know, and you're on day 17, like day 18 gets easier because you don't want to break that chain, you know, exactly. and having that visual. So it's a beautiful sentiment and uh, and one that we can all uh, you know use as a reminder. So thank you, um, Dr. Shirzai. Uh, everyone can find you at teamshirzai.com, spelled S-H-E-R-Z-A-I. Where else uh, do you want people to come and, and interact with you, and um, where can they find more of your work? We're start. We've started a brain health revolution which is a community on, on Mighty Networks where people come in and on a daily basis, we take them through. Um, on Fridays, there are live sessions, but even during the week on Mondays, there are live sessions and, and, and where we, uh, we, we know that the most effective way to change uh, populations, and that's what we're interested in, is to be there for them on a daily basis. We do Q and A's, we have people to actually answer their questions. And Brain Hug Revolution right now has a nominal cost, but we're trying to get rid of that cost. And that's my goal, to get rid of all the costs so that we can do larger populations. We have research populations there as well, which um, we have the uh, black churches in LA that, that we're including in there and New York. We have the uh, populations in Arizona and other places that are coming in as part of the research component. So Brain Hug Revolution, both on social media and outside, uh, shares IMD on social media and uh, just um, that's basically what we're doing and, and the book is of course the 30-day alzheimer's solution uh, we're trying to change basically population-based um, lifestyle uh, towards uh, better brain health well it's it's uh probably the most admirable uh mission and as we continue to see these non-communicable 
diseases being the the key challenges of our lifetime, among other, like you mentioned, you know, uh, eroding soil quality and, yeah. and devastating our oceans. And, you know, there are no shortages, but but certainly um, a, as we find ourselves, hopefully in, in this next frontier, uh, brain health and these neurodegenerative diseases is going to be more and more what we all are dealing with. So thank you for, for leading that charge and uh, for sharing some of your wisdom with us today. Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, wonderful to be partners in this journey with you guys and, and people like you that uh, have a bigger cause than just the, you know, the, the next uh, uh, talk, the next, uh, we want to make a difference in this world, hopefully. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.